George Mallory. Recognize the name, George Mallory? Here he is. One of the greatest, if not the greatest, mountain climber of all time. He was last seen on the 9th of June, 1924, only a few hundred meters from the summit of Everest. The first ascent of the world's highest mountain. The fate of the climber, George, was unknown for 75 years until his body was discovered in 1999. The question is, did he ever reach the top? Was the first man on Everest a guy from Britain? We'll never know. There's one or two clues. He carried a picture of his wife in his top jacket pocket in the hope to leave it at the summit. 75 years later, frozen in the snow when his body was found, the photograph was not there. Perhaps a sign that he reached the top. Did he conquer the mountain? No one knows. No one will ever know. George Mallory, phrase that goes with George Mallory, uh, as is written in a biography, last seen climbing. That's all we know of George Mallory. Did he conquer the mountain? Isn't that similar to the Christian faith? Isn't it similar to the life that I live as a Christian? Don't we all go through these doubts, these fears, How do I know that I am a Christian? Why do I keep doing things, things that I don't want to do, things that I know are not good for me to do, but I keep doing? Can I really be certain of faith? Four weeks in Romans chapter 8, we'll hopefully get to see that Paul has got some answers for us. That we are more than conquerors. Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person, I wonder if anyone's read that. I read it um, 12 years ago. You can probably tell. I'm <laughs> sure you can't. Habit two, seven habits. Start with the end in mind. So that's what we'll do. Stephen Covey, thank you. We'll start with the end in mind. And Paul is saying in verse 37, not 38, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans chapter 8 is conclusion of a pretty big argument that's going on with Paul. Romans, the book, a heavyweight of Paul's writing. And it goes something like this. Look, see what Jesus has done in the past. Let's see what living as a Christian looks like in the present. And then what the reality will look like for the Christian in the future. There's the short version of Romans. We're more than conquerors, says Paul. But today you might feel powerless. Today you might feel pretty defeated, wretched, empty. Life is pointless. Paul says no, far from it. Since chapter 5 verse 12, this is what Paul has been trying to do. He's been trying to describe the status of the Christian. Before becoming a Christian... The individual is separated from God. Why? Because sin. Sin prevents us from being with a holy God. Sin leads to death. Chapter 6, 21, it will appear on the screen. 
It separates us from God forever. 6.22, sorry. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the rest, result is eternal life. In verse 21, Paul says, sin is preventing you from being with a holy God. Look, look what has happened. You've been set free. And in 7 verse 5, Paul says it's the law that's caused us to be condemned for our sin. Sin prevents us from being with a holy God. And the law has caused us to be condemned by sin. The law shows us, shows us, and then condemns us. And chapter 8 is the conclusion of the matter. Now he drives it home. 7, 6, but now by dying... To what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Do you see chapter 8 is a summary of all Paul's argument? That's why we're digging into chapter 8. We could go through the whole of Romans. One day, perhaps, we might. But let's focus in on chapter 8. Two points for today. Here's point one. There's no condemnation for the believer today, verses 1 to 4. There's no condemnation. Why? Because of the work of Christ in the past. That's why. We've seen, we've been released from the consequences of sin and the claims of the law. How? By the death of Jesus. So in 8 verse 1, Paul starts by saying, therefore, therefore, because of what I've said before, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, therefore, whenever we see therefore, ask, what is therefore, therefore? You know it, you've heard me say it, you've heard Johnny Simon say it. What is therefore, therefore? Therefore is there for a reason. And the reason is to summarize all that Paul has been saying. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. So come with me to the court of law. Have you ever sat in a court of law? I was sat at once in the dock. That's another story. But this is what happened. This is what happens. The judge makes a pronouncement at the end of a law case. And if you are justified, you are found not guilty. There's the verdict, not guilty. But if you're condemned, you are found guilty and you will serve the punishment that's due. Look what Paul is saying. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. The verdict is not guilty for those who are in Christ Jesus. How so? Because I look upon a sea, well just for the podcast, uh, there's about 30 people in the room, it's a small sea. I look upon a sea uh, of individuals and when I look in the mirror, I see someone who's deeply guilty. I see someone who has broken the law of God frequently in the past, continues to do so in the present and I know will do in the future. Totally guilty. I stand in the dock every moment and the pronunciation on me, the announcement from the judge should be guilty. 
and sentenced as such. So how is this so that Paul is able, the beginning of chapter 8, to say, therefore there is now no condemnation? Come with me in verse 2 onwards. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here's why. You have been freed. Not guilty. You've been released from the punishment that was due. And you've been freed from the power of the law today. Let's see how this is so. Look at the law of the Spirit. See there, Paul uses this language, the law of the Spirit. The Spirit has power and authority far greater than the power and authority that the law has. Therefore, the law of the Spirit has set you free because of Christ. But now the law of the Spirit has set you free. The past was lived under a constant rule of sin which made use of the law in order to condemn us to death for our disobedience. And now the Spirit has set us free from this rule. Sin is no longer my master. The law does not have a hold. What is the purpose of the law? I must understand this. The law is good. The law is very good. It's given by God. The law is built around his character. It's given so that I may understand God a little bit more than I do. It's given so that I may see his nature in working order. And it is life-giving in nature too. Leviticus 18 verse 5 talks about an obedience to the law that brings life. So the law is from God and it helps me see that God is good. And the law is given to bring life. If it is obeyed, it would bring life. However, to break the law brings death. Deuteronomy 30 talks about this. So the law is good, it is from God. The law is life-giving in its nature, and therefore if it is broken, it brings death. There is the law at work. But see, the law has not been able to do what it was set out to do. It's good. It shows us God's character. The law has not been able to bring life. Not because the law is not competent. It's because the human being has been unable to follow it. Do you see that? The law is good. The law is able to bring life, however the law cannot bring life, because I am unable to follow it. And verse 3, there Paul says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. Not that the law itself uh, didn't have the authority to bring life, it was able. But it was powerless because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. See the law powerless to give us life? 
a life of following God because the flesh, my sinful self, the flesh is just a word for my sinful nature. My sinful nature governed me, mastered me, trapped in sin. Could not follow this good God-given law. See what had to happen? God stepped in. He achieved what the law could not do by sending Jesus. Look at those words, Jesus died as a sin offering. He died as a substitute in, instead of. Jesus, fully human and fully sinless. See what happened. God punished his son to execute his right judgment on our sin. God punished his son to execute his right judgment on our sin. To fulfill the requirements of the law that sin be justly punished. See, that's a brain ache, isn't it? I've just gone blur purposefully. This is gold, and yet I can't get my head around it somehow. It takes time to study, to work out exactly what Paul is saying. Can I ask you over the next four weeks, if you're at a loose end for quiet time stuff, can I ask you to take a journey and ask God before you open the Bible, take a journey in Romans and go one to two to three to four to five to six to seven and to eight and ask God every time you open his word to reveal something more of himself, his rescue plan for a sinful man or woman. And what it looks like now to live in light of what he's done. A great summary of to everything that I've shouted at you about in the last eight minutes. Galatians 3.23 Before the coming of this faith, we were held custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. I'm held under the law. The law gives life. I'm unable to follow it. Therefore, the law will bring death. I'm held under it. And what has to happen? Jesus fulfills it. He has to. I struggle with the certainty of knowing that this is true. Where's the assurance for today? I remember praying the prayer again and again and again and again. Lord, that you would save me. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm a Christian. Do you know that prayer just showed me that I was still thinking that the, the power was within me to do the right thing, to continue saying the prayer of forgiveness. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And I thought if I did that, then he would forgive me. No, no, no. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing. Christ has done everything. He's done everything. Back to Covey. You know his book, Seven Habits of a Highly Successful Person? He's ultimately trying to 
lead me you to higher confidence in self, higher assurance in our ability, in ourselves. And it's only God's word helping us understand the role of the Spirit, the role of the Spirit that is those for those and in those who have been transformed. It's only that that brings utter confidence, assurance in life. Not me. My inability to follow God, the law shows that I cannot do that. I've got no assurance in that. None at all. The only assurance that I have that now I'm under no condemnation is what Christ has done. It's out of me. He's come and he's dealt with the law which condemns my sin. And rightly so. It's no wonder Charles Wesley uh, wrote the hymn, And can it be, and can it be, I can't get this, says John Wesley, Charles Wesley maybe. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued amazing love, how can it be that thou, my gods, shouldst die for me? Or John Newton said, two things I know, I am a great sinner and I have a great saviour. You see now there is no condemnation, no condemnation today because of the work of Christ in the past who deals with sin and deals with the implications of the law on sinful man. He fulfills them, the sinless one, in my place. Oh, here's the second point. Here's my absolute hope for tomorrow, verses 5 to 11. If I've looked at the idea today, no condemnation, no condemnation today, so be assured by what has done, what has happened, what has taken place, not by my ability to hold to that, keep that. It's been done for the Christian, all sorted. Point to absolute hope for tomorrow, verses 5 to 11. Why? Because of the work of the Spirit. It's funny how Paul talks about the Spirit. It's kind of he takes so much for granted, stuff that I, I need to get my head round. This is the Spirit's work. In these next verses, we'll see the critical work of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is crucial in, a, in an age, perhaps within our church, that wants to drive home more of the Spirit's work with the gifts that He gives and the fruit uh, that comes from following Him. That's all secondary to the Spirit's work in the heart of a sinner that was mastered by sin and subject to the law. This is what the Spirit does. And so there's five points I think that are really helpful to understand the role of the Spirit. Kerry's doing junior church and we were talking pretty much uh, all week. How do we do this with young people? How do we do this with four to ten-year-olds? Understand, help them to understand the Spirit's role. Hard enough for us to get our heads around. Really hard for little ones to get. But here are five points I think helpful in understanding the work of the Spirit from 5 through to 11. Uh, let's look quickly at this. Look, number one, I'm kind of going back a little bit, but the Spirit's work is to liberate us from sin. 
You see that he frees us from the grip of sin and its consequences. Turn that round. He frees us from the consequences of sin and the grip of sin. Saw that in verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is what the Spirit does. Wonderfully, as I was growing up, a, a youth leader had this great analogy. I can remember it to this day. This is what happens. This is what the Spirit does. He takes sin through Christ, what Christ has done, and he wraps it up in a great bag and throws loads of bricks in it, spirit, and then he takes it down to the lake and he throws it into the middle of the lake and he puts up a sign saying, no fishing, don't come here anymore. The spirit frees us from sin's consequences and its grip. That's the spirit's work. He does that. He liberates us from sin, point one. Look, he lives in every believer. See the language that Paul uses in 5 to 11? It's all inclusive. It's for every Christian. It's for everyone in whom Christ has died for. 20, 30 years ago, again when I was growing up, widely understood that you receive the Spirit in a second conversion. Wrong, says Paul. No, 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 there's no more receiving of the Spirit to be had. He either lives in you or he doesn't. Christ has done it. The Spirit's job is to liberate us from sin. He frees us from the grip of sin and its consequences by uniting us to Christ. He lives in every believer. That's where the Spirit is. You know, sometimes we pray, Lord, by your Spirit, would you be here? He always is, if there's a Christian present. Do you know in the Bible it talks about the Spirit's presence is in the life of the believer, not in a building, not in a place. Paul says here he is, and he lives in every believer. And you know he fully lives in every believer. It's not like we can leak the Spirit, and he's kind of half there and half in. It's not that I need to be filled up with the Spirit. There's all language perhaps that we're so used to. But Paul is saying, no, no, he's in every believer. It's all inclusive. He's there all the time. Why? Because he frees us from the consequences of sin. That's his job. This is his job. And he frees us from the grip of sin. So he lives in every believer. Get this. Please get this. And then the third point, verse 5, look. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. See what the Spirit does, changes the believer's desires. He controls our minds. You see the work, he controls it. The mind here is is the control center of the body. The mind is where sin is formed. Have you seen this in life? Your life? Stop and think for a moment. Stop and think about the desires that you used to have for yourself, for your ambition. The desires you used to have for your own approval, for gain of money. Listen, have your desires changed? Johnny, you okay? Just set you up a bit. All right. 
Have you seen the change? You may be sitting there going, no, I don't think so. I don't think I've seen much change. Yes, sure, you're tempted. You're tempted to see these things, to gain fulfillment. But ultimately, you want what the Spirit desires. Isn't that true? Hold up a a videotape of your last week. And you go, Lanx, there's no evidence here that the Spirit has changed my desire. And you'd be right to hold up the videotape and go, feel wretched. Look at chapter 7 of Romans. He goes, ah, the things I want to do. Oh, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Here's Paul's battle. It's a struggle. But he changes your desire. That's why the battle is raging. He changes your desire. Self-adulation. He changes your desire for the lustful thought. I don't want it. Ah, but I get it. I have it. But I don't want it. That's because the Spirit has changed your desires. He has. That's his role. Look, here's your desire now as a believer. Your desire is to live for Jesus, isn't it? To bring God glory is that your desire and you see the Holy Spirit's role it's it's just a spotlight to focus on the Lord Jesus you see the Holy Spirit does that if you're at a concert and and spotlights light up the main stage you're not attracted to look at the spotlight one bit you might just look around at the lights and go wow but the spotlights are there to show you the main stage That's what the Holy Spirit does. To show Jesus, to point you to Jesus so that you would live for Jesus. So that you would live for him and give him great glory. He changes the believer's desires. And look, Paul continues to describe the desires of those who are still governed by the flesh. You tell if you're a Christian or not by this. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Helpful to see that. Is that you? Perhaps you're not a Christian. This describes you. It does. You cannot please God. You're hostile to Him. You'll not let Him be Lord of life. Please change. Two more things quickly. Look, the role of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ and God is the Spirit living in you. See verse 9? You who, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. See the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ? Here's the Spirit. Here's the Trinity, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God, is the living Spirit in you. It's in you. It's yours. The Spirit of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is in you. That's something for you to get your head around this week. And look, lastly, he brings... Life everlasting. The role of the Spirit brings life everlasting. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, 
then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. See, he brings life because of a status. You're seen as righteous. The Spirit's role is to roll this out. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Look, the Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead, it's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, that Spirit that raised Jesus up from the dead, he will also bring you everlasting life. He will raise your body from the dead. There's the assurance of time to come. Dear friends, would you trust? There's now no condemnation. You're not condemned, so live free. You're justified. Why? Because of the work of Christ in the past. It's the Spirit's job to keep reminding me. Spirit's job to keep me looking to the cross. It's the Spirit's job to keep illuminating Christ, showing me Jesus and the work of Him. That's the Spirit's job. And there's absolute hope for tomorrow because of those five points of the Spirit, because of the work of the Spirit, because the Spirit enables me to say, no, my desires have changed. I've got the power of the living Lord Jesus in me to say no to that and to say yes to following Him. And so will I this week trust that the Spirit is doing His job and I have power to say no. Will you trust that that's the case? Fling yourself on him. And ask every day that he'd enable you to live a power-filled life. Knowing there's no condemnation. Knowing that I no longer sit underneath the law and the punishment that the law delivers. Know that I would be free. And free to choose Christ this week in all I do. Let me pray and then we'll sing that great song, And Can It Be, together. Father, thanks for your spirit who lives in each one of us who trust in you. Thank you that the spirit affirms and assures that there, there, that, that there is now no condemnation on me, on my name. And thank you that the Spirit brings absolute hope for tomorrow because He lives in me. And He gives me the power to say no to my old sinful flesh that is still making war. And He enables me to say yes to following the Lord Jesus because my desires have been changed. Oh Lord, would you help us to live out this life of freedom in you? Please help us this week to grapple with what it means to live life in the Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.